What this show seems to do is just turn things upside down. So instead of telling this mediagenic narrative about the artist as hero, it tells this kind of equally mediagenic narrative about the artist as a pure villain. I'm Kate Brown, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. This year marks the 50th anniversary of the death of one of the most famous artists of the 20th century, Pablo Picasso. To mark the occasion, an international carousel of events has been organized. The so-called Picasso Celebration has seen some 50 museums throughout the world run different exhibitions that consider the artist's legacy from various angles. Certainly, the most unusual and talked about of these is not a celebration of Picasso at all. The Brooklyn Museum in New York took a different tack and is currently hosting a show called It's Pablo-Matic, Picasso According to Hannah Gatsby. Gatsby, a famous Australian stand-up comedian, worked alongside the Brooklyn Museum's curators, Catherine Morris and Lisa Small. The art show they put together has taken its cues from Gatsby's blockbuster Netflix special, Nanette. That 2018 comedy show was, among other things, a blistering argument about the sexism of art history, the art industry, and specifically of Picasso. The Brooklyn Museum's It's Pablomatic has been itself at the center of a wave of criticism in recent weeks. To wade into this, Rachel Corbett, Artnet's deputy editor, speaks to Artnet's national art critic, Ben Davis, who untangled these manifold criticisms and unpacked what the show really signifies about our current cultural moment in a brilliant two-part essay on Artnet News. Hey, Ben, thanks for joining us on The Art Angle. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Great to be here. So we're here to talk about It's Pablomatic, Picasso According to Hannah Gadsby, which is a show that recently opened at the Brooklyn Museum. Can you tell us, first off, who's Hannah Gadsby? Yeah, for people who don't know, Hannah Gadsby is an Australian comedian who became a big deal in 2018 with a special for Netflix called Nanette. And this was, I guess I want to call it a comedy special, but it's really more than that. And it was received as more than that. It starts out being a stand-up set and then set out to deconstruct the form. So in particular, Gadsby told the story of this homophobic encounter where they were abused twice, first as a joke, and the second time retelling this story and talking about how humor and art is used to cover over the real pain and violence of contemporary life. And it is hard to overstate what a sensation this was. And in particular, in the art world, people were pretty excited and energized and engaged by the fact that Gadsby had studied art history and art history was very much a part of the act and a big set piece of the act was connecting these experiences and this analysis of art and what it did to an analysis of how art history had apologized for abusive and violent men, in particular Pablo Picasso. He sort of becomes the villain of the piece. So Gadsby spends a lot of time talking about Picasso in this special. What exactly is their argument about Picasso in Nanette? The argument of Nanette in particular with regard to Picasso in art history was that Picasso was a misogynist and that the art industry had an interest in covering over those facts. In fact, when you really listen to 
the argument, it seems like Gadsby is arguing that there's not much to Picasso's art besides the misogyny and besides a kind of mythology about Picasso as a virile art god and made an argument which was very contemporary at that time and stimulated a lot of takes and articles following up on it, essentially that we should cancel Picasso. I mean, I don't think there's any other way to talk about it. The argument that they made in the special was that I am not interested in Picasso because of his treatment of women, and by extension that the viewer or the listener should not be either. Which makes it kind of odd that Gatsby would be the curator for a show on Picasso. Absolutely. Yeah, it's truly kind of an experimental thing, I think. The words not interested appear many times in <laughs> Nanette. And I would say there is something of an experimental idea to do an art show with a guest curator who is on the record saying they are not interested in their subject. <laughs> but nonetheless, here we are. We have a show about Picasso by Hannah Gadsby. So can you just tell us what it is? What do viewers see when they walk in? It's problematic. So the show is at the Brooklyn Museum. It is an odd-feeling show, I have to say. It has Gadsby's name above the door and big quote about canceling Picasso right beside the entrance. Inside, there's about 100 works, evenly divided between Picasso works and works by a number of feminist artists, mainly people who are part of the feminist art canon post-1970s, that is, after Picasso died. And they're kind of mixed together into something that feels like a hybrid of an argument about Picasso and his problematic side, and then an argument about feminist art. Can you tell us a bit about what that argument about feminist art is? And maybe you could also say who some of the artists are. So these are artists whose names, if you studied art history or contemporary art in the last 20, 30 years, you'd probably know. Figures like Cindy Sherman, Kiki Smith, Dara Birnbaum, Harmony Hammond, the Gorilla Girls, Judy Chicago. And they're organized in loosely thematic rooms about different questions raised by Picasso's art, like the male gaze or the figure of the passive woman. But I have to say that it's a little confusing. It feels a little bit like an odd mix between what's going on with these artists and what's going on with Picasso. And I think that grows out of a dilemma that the curators have that flows directly from centering the show around Hannah Gadsby, which is that when you start from the point of view that this is about Picasso, but I am not interested in Picasso, they end up with kind of a weird hybrid of addressing Picasso, but also feeling like you're over-centering him, that you're kind of like in the act of criticizing him, you're kind of granting him a lot of space. So you get this kind of strange bifurcated thing. And then the last thing I should say, that Gadsby really much is themselves at the center of the show, as in clips from Nanette are played in the galleries so that you can sit and get their argument about Picasso as you go back and forth between the different artworks in the show. And you make a point that the Picasso works that are included are fairly minor. Yeah, I would say that's another weird thing about this show. Now we're starting to get into some of the things that I find curious or troubling about this show, that Gatsby's argument about Picasso isn't just that he was a bad person or that he mistreated women or that he was a male chauvinist. 
it would be that, but it is more than that. It is also that only a mythology of the virile male genius props up his art. And they don't think much of the art other than that. They refer in the special of them as doodles. The argument is very explicitly made in the text of this show that there's not much to the artworks when you clear away that mythology. The argument really is Picasso is a fraud and that if you like Picasso, you are essentially making apologies for misogyny because you're swallowing this mythology that it's great. And that's a little strange in this show. It's not Picasso's best work, you know? It's not a show where you really make the best case for what Picasso is. So in some cases, Gadsby's texts, which each of the artworks in the show is accompanied by essentially a quip by Hannah Gadsby, joking about the artwork. But in a lot of cases, these quips aren't just jokes, but seem to kind of be anti-modernist asides, making fun of not just Picasso, but just kind of like the tone is, you call this art, this is your hero. But that is very weird in a show that doesn't have access or make a real case for him. So sometimes you have these very small, minor artworks. In one case that I note in my article, a small plaster head of a weeping woman. It's really hardly an artwork at all. And then the label next to it has Gadsby making this crack that you look at this and you really remember that people always make a big deal about how Picasso never went to art school. Well, it's hard to appreciate this otherwise. And that is just such a strange comment to make for an art museum to be amplifying, you know, because it doesn't really help people understand what people might have liked about Picasso. It really is as if Gadsby is taking an argument about Picasso's personal life and collapsing with an argument about the merit of his art. And there are also texts accompanying the works by the women artists in the show, but those are treated very differently. Those, as I understand it, are written by the artists themselves. Rachel, I spent four hours in this show, maybe a little bit more than that. I really tried to figure out what was going on here, partly because the show is the talk of the town and partly because it's a very curious and odd show. It has a strange texture as you go through it because it seems to be going off in different directions all at once. And for a show that has Gadsby making the argument that we should not give so much space to Picasso, all Gadsby's fire textually is trained on Picasso. And almost none of that is on the other artists in the show. Certainly the impression you'd come away from it was that Gadsby was much more preoccupied with taking down Picasso. This was really an anti-Picasso show more than it was a feminist art history show. And the reactions to the show have been remarkably strong. I remember Disastrous was in one headline. The New York Times panned it pretty roundly. Can you characterize what the reactions have been? Yeah, well, this gets to why I wanted to write about the show. At this point, I just want to take a step back and say something about my own position here, because there's been a lot of backlash to the show, and some of it, you know, I think, reactionary backlash. And I'm aware that there's a kind of a sense of the male art establishment closing ranks around Picasso in how people are receiving this criticism. And I can feel that I'm going to be read that way too. 
there's like every risk of me adding to an unproductive debate. On the other hand, I think there are real limits to some of the arguments Gadsby makes. And I think there's something very interesting to think about how this show is constructed. And I also think, you know, there are some limits to some of the way people are responding to this show and criticizing Gadsby's project. So that's how I'm approaching this conversation as something to step into, which certainly feels like stepping into a, a storm. I have never seen more backlash in advance for a show in my entire life. Every time I logged onto the Twitter, you could see someone making cracks about this show in the last few years. Like, there is a huge difference between the moment of Nanette, which was 2018, when that comedy special was received almost universally as this huge, important intervention into the conversation about art. I mean, it won a Peabody Award. And then you cut to 2022, when this show is first announced, and almost from the beginning, it received a lot of criticism, just the idea of it. And I think, and this gets into the way I'm processing this show and thinking about the way the discourse has changed in that time period, that there is just a tremendous amount of alienation behind the scenes mainly in the art conversation with a certain kind of moralistic articulation of social justice rhetoric as applied to culture that became really mainstream in the Trump era and now has reached a certain limit. And I'll just read you a quote from Hilton Alls, the theater critic for The New Yorker, that was a review already from 2019, I believe, that was him criticizing in pretty sharp terms Gadsby's follow-up to Nanette, which was another special called Douglas. Hilton Hall says, there's a great deal of truth in nuance and ambiguity, and yet we live in a time when nuance and all the confused intentions, desires, and beliefs that go along with it are considered less a way of understanding human frailty than a failure of accountability. And I think that sense that a certain level of nuance in how culture is addressed is pretty widely felt. And while some of it is like there's a reactionary version of that, certainly not only conservatives or Donald Trump Republicans are alienated by the cultural discourse. And you could feel in this groundswell of critique of it's problematic in advance that this might be the moment when that conversation burst into the mainstream of the art world. And I think that was the case in advance and in the reception of it. Since it's opened, you see some of that as well. Do you think it has to do with, you mentioned both the fact that five years have passed and there's been an evolution in how we think and talk about some of these issues, but also the fact that this audience is a particularly art audience? Well, I, I think there's some of that, too. I mean, for some people in the art world, Nanette was a really important event. Gatsby's co-curators of this show have talked about that, how excited they were as Brooklyn Museum has a center for feminist art. Nanette was hugely popular and hugely important, and Gatsby was essentially making an argument that was almost feminist art history 101 in public, and there seemed to be a huge audience for it. And 
this show, as I understand it, began with a visit by Gatsby to the Brooklyn Museum and just a conversation about how good it would be to collaborate, to take advantage of that conversation, to advance the discussion of feminist art history. So I think definitely there are aspects of the Nanette argument, the Gadsby critique of Picasso that fit a certain moment of trying to figure out where art stood in the post-Me Too moment and reassessing art history and so on. But I think art historians and people who are art lovers have a really long history of relationships with Picasso as an artist. He is a very important maybe foundational figure in the history of modern art. And I think it would be fair to say that for a good number of people, Gadsby's argument about Picasso was viewed as pretty reductive, including myself. Let's not talk in abstractions. I mean, I receive it as pretty reductive. And in a certain sense, you know, it's a pity because... At the Brooklyn Museum, they take a 13-minute cutting of Nanette is what plays, the specific part that focuses on art history. And I I do think that that's understandable because you want to explain what we're doing here with the show organized by Acuity, but it's also kind of a loss because I think that what made the show very convincing was the way that story about Picasso and these anecdotes from art history were articulated together with Gatsby's personal story. And you take out the personal story and you lose a lot of what made it emotionally convincing to people. And what you're left with is a kind of a fiddly argument about how you receive art. I just wanted to find out if you think that the argument, which you say is reductive, if it is essentially that we should cancel Picasso. You know... It's really, really funny. I was listening to an interview with the curators of the show, and they go out of their way to say, it's not about canceling Picasso. And all our conversations with Hannah Gadsby were about, oh, we want to nuance that. It's not about canceling Picasso. And it's just really funny. I mean, this in that way and a lot of other ways, I just feel like the show is actually an argument with Hannah Gadsby, phrased as an argument alongside Hannah Gadsby. Because... If you listen to all the texts, as I have in the show, it's not ambiguous that Hannah Gadsby would like to cancel Picasso. They don't think we can. They say that, I'm quoting from one of the audio guide texts, I am not optimistic that in a moment where Johnny Depp is still celebrated as a celebrity, that we're going to move the needle on Pablo Picasso. But that is essentially saying, I would like to cancel Picasso, but we can't, which is different than saying we're not trying to cancel Picasso. I think there's an argument within this show. And I keep thinking of, you know, this infamous interview between Kanye West and Alex Jones, where Kanye West is saying these really inflammatory anti-Semitic things. And Alex Jones keeps trying to bring him back and be like, well, you don't mean Hitler was really a good guy. And then Kanye West says, no, I think he had some really good ideas. And I'm not saying that's the same as Hannah Gadsby. But I'm just saying, when I listen to the curators talk about it, that's kind of how I feel, that they keep trying to nuance their argument and say, like, you're not trying to 
cancel Picasso. We're not trying to say he wasn't a good artist. We're trying to deepen how people talk about it. And then when it flips back to Gadsby speaking, what I hear is actually saying, no, I would like to cancel Picasso and he's a terrible artist. And if you like him, you're an apologist for misogyny. Again, it just makes for a very strange texture of a show. So this show is happening because it is the 50th anniversary of Picasso's death, and there are exhibitions around the world celebrating him. And this aspect of his life, this sort of more controversial side, is not new. Hannah Gadsby is not the first person to point this out. And you mentioned even Ariana Huffington wrote a book about this. So could you tell us a little bit about what that history of contending with Picasso's life has been? Yeah, this is really interesting and not something I actually knew a lot about before this show, which maybe says something about me or about our history or something. But there is and has been a mythology around Picasso as this swaggering, virile figure. And that was part of his legend in the 1960s. There is a book called My Life with Picasso by one of his paramours, Francois Gillot, who's a painter herself. And this book was published in 1964. And it's an unflattering account of their life together. And it's the source of a lot of the anecdotes that people talk about when they talk about how Picasso was controlling and abusive to the women in his life. It's actually a very rich account of a relationship that, to me, tells a story that's really about machismo and art and how it intersects with modern celebrity. And it's worth reading itself. It's not like everyone wanted to hear these stories. In the introduction to the book, they talk about how when it was set to be published, that 40 French intellectuals signed a letter saying that it ought to be suppressed. It is true that there has been a history of not wanting to talk about some of the more unsavory things about Picasso's personal life, even as you sold his personal life as part of the package. Yeah, there is Gillot's book and lots of other accounts, including the Ariane Huffington book, Picasso, Creator and Destroyer, drew on Gillot and was made into a pretty mediocre Anthony Hopkins movie in 1996 by Merchant Ivory that depicts Picasso as kind of a petty tyrant and features a scene, which is based on a real thing, where he has Dora Maar and Marie-Therese Walter battle for his affections while he paints Guernica. So the charges about that dark side of Picasso are not new. What I do think is new about the Nanette argument was that it really fit an argument about Picasso in art history into an argument of contemporary politics and the moment of Donald Trump and how we should be rethinking art. And the argument was very specifically one aim that was if we had dealt with misogyny in culture before we might not have Donald Trump. Very specifically, that was the argument of the special. Which is why it seems to me you have decided to write this two-part essay, very long, very thoughtful piece about what most people seem to consider a relatively minor show in the scheme of things. So this obviously says a lot more to you about the moment we're in culturally and within the art world. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a real air of glee to some of the takedowns of the show that I do not share. You know, 
I'm not happy to see Gatsby go down, you know? And I think that we're in this really particular moment when I think during the Trump years, a lot of pressure was put on culture as a way of seeing some kind of progress in a really dark time. That cultural consumption could give us a sense of forward momentum that in a bigger term or a longer sense would map a way forward for us. That's pretty explicit in Nanette. I think that's one of the reasons it resonated so much, that for as unsparing and uncompromising and in a certain way, all the difficulties that argument provided, it did offer you know, a cultural project for people to attach themselves to, something you could do as an art consumer or as a culture consumer in a perilous time. But it is, I think, not a good thing I think there are the subtleties, the particularities, the contradictions and dilemmas that these arguments leave us with are important. And while there are people who are just out to salvage Picasso because they don't care about the women in his life and all that's important to them is like making a buck off of the Picasso legend, or they're just anti-feminists, and reactionaries, certainly not all the people who were alienated by these kind of arguments or some of the cultural debates that the Trump era left us with the continue today were. And it sort of drives me to despair to see that the conversation can't move on from this, that any criticism is received in through the lens of reactionary backlash. Because to me, it's like, if you care about an argument, how good an argument is matters like, it truly matters. And if your argument's not connecting or alienating the wrong people, you got to sharpen your argument. I think it's because so much pressure was put on culture, which is, in the end, the slipperiest. And there's the biggest wiggle room in culture in terms of, like, how people read it and receive it. That became the arena to have a lot of these struggles that people really had to push hard. And then that has produced certain kinds of difficulties or contradictions that this show seems to kind of know. You know, I think the curators kind of know, the artists involved in it kind of know, but it's still centered around Gadsby's argument about how if you like Picasso as an artist, you have to be making an apology for his personal life. And Rachel, one of the things that really strikes me as a strange thing about this show is that it makes that argument very clearly, or Gadsby makes that argument very clearly, and then scattered around the room you have these important feminist artists and some effort has been made to ask each of them what do you think of the picasso legend and some of the artists specifically judy chicago seem to co-sign gadsby's take judy chicago says i don't admire picasso or his art he was a chauvinist and i can't get anything out of that but most of the artists essentially use the space to make an argument about how, yes, I do separate the artist from the art on a provisional level, and I'm aware of the bad things about Picasso, but his art has given me something. You know, it's been generative for me. So it seems to me that the argument is right there, and somehow it's also the argument is invisible because it's an argument with the main curator, the celebrity name above the door. I notice that there's sort of contradictory statements of fact. It's I have to say, very strange that it's entirely based around an argument about how Picasso is a terrible guy and we ought to not like his art, but then it 
is not clear at all about what it's saying he did that's so bad. It kind of leaves that to innuendos, and it's kind of a little bit of this, a little bit of that. At one point, Hannah Gadsby seems to imply that he molested women in their sleep. I've never read that charge. I could be wrong. I'm not a Picasso expert. So it's really just throwing a little bit of everything in a way that's a little perplexing and leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, I had to do the research myself, you know. I want to get this right. You know, it's one of the benefits of being late to to review something. I wasn't in the first round of review, so I had the time to be like, okay, what is the truth here? This is maybe going backwards too far, but I did want to ask a follow-up question earlier. Why do you think that culture has become the ground on which a lot of these battles are being waged in particular? There's not one answer for that. I think that culture is, in the Trump years in particular, was available to people at a time when, you got to remember, when Trump gets elected, he doesn't just get elected, the Republicans take the Congress. And people are really stunned and are really looking for something. There is also a sense, unfortunately, I think it's because culture is convenient, that progressives are overrepresented in cultural spaces. That's just the social compromise we live in. It's like the places where educated people who learn how to speak the social justice language are concentrated, happen to be in media, education, culture. So there's a sense that those become the places where you're having the conversation because that's where the bases of people are. And it's always really concerned me And this is not a new thing that I'm saying with this show, by the way. I mean, I wrote about this when Trump was elected. I wrote about it when he failed to be reelected. That there are these really important conversations about moving the needle forward on who gets to speak. And that's a really important question. And I think that there have been some really remarkable developments in the last five years in terms of, like, reconsidering art history, looking at things in new ways. But there was always this danger of, like, Instead of like seizing the institution of culture to like project outwards these values to change the political conversation, that instead what culture will become is more and more a kind of bubble where people recirculated arguments mainly to other people who were primed for those arguments already because of their cultural backbone formation, and that those arguments would become more and more coded in ways that didn't move beyond those circles, that the kind of conversation people had at the beginning of Trump years about, are we in a liberal bubble, would just get more intense. And I think that's basically what happened. And one of the things I see when I look at something like it's Pablo Matic is these arguments about art in collapsing a moral judgment of an artist into an aesthetic judgment of the work have limited a lot of things because it's not just apologists for Picasso's misogyny who have a relationship to these artworks that take positive things away from them. That's a pretty narrow argument to say that you can't get anything else out of it. It's not an argument that, as I say, most of the artists in this show, the feminist artists in the show agree with. But it seems to be an argument that the Brooklyn Museum can't really move beyond or openly criticize it's sort of sideways criticizing it. And to me, that's a representation of the fact that the discourse has really seized up, has become a machine 
that narrows people's understanding of each other and the potentials for political progress to a certain extent in the sense that you need a coalition of people with different views on a reasonable set of things in order to move forward. It was really interesting, this discussion you had about this alienation from moralism and the problem we have with all of these moral arguments and then within the left, this splintering off of people who are just exhausted with it and then the price that we might pay for that. I mean, this is a truly alarming time, right? I mean, like, we're talking about feminist art history at a time when women's rights have been definitively rolled back by the repeal of Roe v. Wade. And there is a horrible campaign of scapegoating against transgender people across the United States. That's the political world that we live in. And at the same time, what I see around me, I don't have a huge circle of reactionary friends, you know, but I have a broad circle of friends and colleagues. And really the topic of the last two years has been in different permutations, you know, different levels of alienation with the official discourse, the moralism of the official cultural discourse, the sense that you very much get from Gadsby's critique of Picasso that culture has become a permanent referendum on morality and that the other dimensions of this are being lost. There's a very famous essay by Rosalind Krauss from 1981 called In the Name of Picasso, where she's criticizing the biographical reception of Picasso, this idea that Picasso's artwork is essentially a diary. And Krauss talks about how, you know, look, this reference to celebrating his art as an extension of his biography keeps people from viewing these things as artistic objects that have specific kinds of artistic operations. And even though Hannah Gadsby is reversing that formula, is saying it's not that he's a good person, therefore he's a good artist, it's that he's a bad person, therefore he's a bad artist, it's still the same thing, that there's a certain way the biography, the, your assessment of a, of a person who's being used as an assessment. And that's alarming. I mean, if you allow me a digression, I read this paper on Fox News and it was talking about how liberal commentators tend to view Fox News as propaganda, as they should, as it is. But that one of the things that leaves out is a consideration of its aesthetics. You know, they play country music at the episode breaks. So it reads as coded in a certain kind of cultural way. And you can say, in one sense, it's because that kind of culture has a certain conservative lean. But in another sense, you could say that it also means that, like, maybe in reading that only through the lens of conservative politics, you miss a chance to, like, intervene in those aesthetics, you know, to reach the different kind of audience that is drawn to those aesthetics because Fox News reads one way and NPR reads another. You listen to NPR and you hear smooth jazz between the breaks and you know exactly who it's targeted at. You have a mental image of those people. The aesthetics code a certain kind of audience, but it's also semi-independent. And there's a complex conversation there that's worth talking about. And I have heard people have literally made the argument to me, famous art critics have made the argument to me that, you know, nuance is a code word for patriarchy in the last five years. And I know where that comes from. I know that sometimes people say you're lacking a nuance when they really mean, you know, like trying to dismiss an important argument. But it's also a very disturbing sentiment when you think about it. What it says about that we're going to concede nuance to the patriarchy is upsetting to me. And I think 
potentially locks us in these ever more fractious debates that lead me to some degree of despair when I look around the world and think about how we're having this conversation when <laughs> that seems like such a deadlock at the same time that, you know, there's so much more to be done outside the museum walls. Or that there's a protest going on within the museum walls over its labor practices, for example. You know, there is a way that any criticism of identity politics is received as dismissing the claims of marginalized people. And that it's like a code for white men researching those at the center of the conversation. But there are ways that identity politics in a watered-down form get used to cover over very cynical policies. And yeah, the Brooklyn Museum is currently in the middle of a labor struggle with its workers trying to just get a livable wage in New York. And I do think it's reasonable to think that there is a cost to be paid if you use progressive rhetoric about reconsidering the museum canon. And then that is seen as something that you know, the museum is offering with one hand, well, it does another thing to its workers. On the other hand, it's reasonable to assume that either that argument will be used to discredit very legitimate claims or that some number of people will conclude, oh, this is all horseshit, right? You know, this is all just, they want us to talk about the art canon while they pick our pockets. Some number of people will conclude that and have concluded that. And it scares me the degree of alienation people have with causes that I consider very important because like, Certain kinds of reductive arguments have been advanced and nobody has found a way to articulate a way through these debates in a constructive way. And that leaves us in a very dangerous place at a very dangerous time. So one of the things this show contends with is museums' own history of lionizing artists, creating these kind of myths around usually male genius artists. And you see... Gadsby is having a kind of reaction to that notion of the artist hero. Look, I think this is interesting, actually, that one of the things that's unique about Pablo Picasso, and this is the argument the show could have made, is that Pablo Picasso is one of the first, if not the first, modern media celebrity artist. In the post-war period, Picasso became tremendously famous. His biography was used to sell him. And I think that does set the template for a certain kind of museum storytelling. It is much easier to sell to a broad general public in the blockbuster era, which is the 70s era. After Picasso died and when feminist art history is getting going, is also there's a biographical turn where the idea of telling a great story about an artist's life becomes integral to selling and packaging the art. And I mentioned Rosalind Krauss's foremost argument about Picasso before. It's like, we should cut the biographical stuff and get to the like operations of the paintings as signifiers. I don't really believe that. I actually think, you know, there are really complex choices to be made about how you put together the artist's life with the art and that how you receive the art always, by definition, and requires linking it to some kind of sense of what it means, what the time period was, what kind of person made it. More often than not, I find myself, when I'm writing about art, trying to undo some level of mythology in the artwork. So I'll just give you an example. Alice Neal, who's a very 
important painter right now. Her life overlapped with Picasso's time period in a lot of ways. She did beautiful figurative painting. When I reviewed her show at the Metropolitan Museum, you know, I look at it and I can see how they're kind of sculpting her life in the presentation of her to make her into a feminist in the contemporary sense and turn her leftism into contemporary progressivism in a way that makes it less unnerving to a contemporary audience because Alice Neal was a member of the Communist Party, United States, and had a very specific take on women's liberation that flowed from that. And it's not exactly contemporary feminism or contemporary progressivism in any way. But in order to tell her story, it's much more convenient if you leave strategically out big parts of that because then you have to have like a pretty difficult conversation about what communism meant to artists during the 1930s and how the fate of the Soviet Union and what Alice Neal knew about it or thought about it and how that reflected in her commitment to realism and how she related to other artists, how she related to the concept of feminism itself, which she was very sharply critical in some ways. So there's a way that the biography is invoked, but also like there's a lot of strategic silence about it. A lot of times I find myself doing that kind of work of unpacking some of those silences. When I look at this show at the Brooklyn Museum, it's problematic, is kind of an experiment. I mean, I like that about it, actually. It's an interesting experiment to do like a negative biography. And I think it could have been a different show that actually went through. Here are some of the women that Picasso painted. Here's who they are as people. Here's what the character of the relationship was. And you could look at the art and learn something about the history of women's lives through them. And it would be a really interesting show that would tell you a lot. None of them would seem like contemporary people, by the way. They'd all have totally unrecognizable ideas on gender and politics and so forth. But I do see that what this show seems to do is just turn things upside down. So instead of telling this media genic narrative about the artist as hero, it tells this kind of equally mediagenic narrative about the artist as a pure villain. And it feels to me like, really, when you unpack that, we're caught within the structure of melodrama, you know, and not within the structure of what I think an art show might aspire to be, which is this really difficult, complex thing, which is like learning how to read these very specific forms of communication against their times, but not reducing them to them, and making really strategic decisions about how you receive them. I mean, people quote Roland Barthes' essay, The Death of the Author, a lot as a kind of a punchline about what postmodernism was about. But one of the things he was talking about in that essay is that you get to make decisions. The reader is active. It, the text doesn't reduce to its author. You, you are an active part of the story of a narrative. You get to make active choices about what is important about it and what is not and how they are read. There's this painting by Marilyn Mitchell called Bad Girls in the Show. And, and the quote doesn't have much to do with the painting, but she is asked about Picasso. And Marilyn Minter says, without a doubt, he was a great artist, despite being a horrible human being. I have to think about the art and the artist separately. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to learn anything. And I just think of all the quotes in the show, which come from very different points of view and arrive at different places about how you process Picasso... To me, 
that idea, I wouldn't be able to learn anything, which I think is essentially saying if I follow Hannah Gadsby's argument to its logical conclusion, I wouldn't be able to learn anything because Gadsby very clearly makes the argument in Nanette and in this show that there is nothing to get from Picasso, not interested because of the way he treated the women in his life, that if, that I think the quote is, cubism taught us to see things from all the perspectives at once, but is any one of those perspectives a woman? Then I'm not interested. But Marilyn Minter is saying, like, I can find my own perspective in this. You know, I'm an active partner in our history. And I think that's really important. I think that it's important at the minimum what art museums can do is be a place where people can learn to be active readers of images and doesn't solve a lot of the problems, but it's the beginning of having a conversation of how we might solve them, learning to open the conversation rather than to close it. Well, that seems like a very nice place to end the conversation. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks for talking with me, Rachel. You know, it's a difficult conversation, but I actually am hopeful that something positive is going to emerge from all the debate around this show. I know that for me, talking about it has been clarifying. That's it for this week's episode. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Manalili, Carolyn Goldstein, and Tim Schneider. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.